please open to Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew 16, our theme for the year is follow Christ. Jesus is completely honest with people. In these verses, he explains very clearly what it will be like to follow him. First of all, he calls us to extreme sacrifice. And he says, deny yourself. So what does it mean to deny yourself? It means to replace myself with Christ, to renounce my ability to save myself. The publican prayed, I deny myself the right to enter heaven on my own merit, on my own good deeds. And then number three, what we most consider deny myself, it means to relinquish my rights and my desires, to deny self, to deny selfishness, to deny what you want becomes the new way of the Christian life. Now we come to extreme commitment. Take up your cross. And today we will see that to follow Christ will require extreme commitment. Would you please stand with me as I read to you from Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 to be a follower of Christ. Matthew 16 verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, there's the invitation, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Save his life, shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake, shall find it. For what shall a man profit it if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? May we pray. <coughs> Father, we come to you today, and I pray that you would help us to remove the cares of this world from our thoughts. May we have an open heart to hear the word of God and the message that Jesus Christ has for each one of us. I ask that you would help each one of us to examine our hearts to see if we are genuine and true followers of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray if there be some here today and they're not sure that heaven is their home, may they set aside their pride and truly make the commitment to become a genuine Christian. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. A few weeks ago, I picked up this book that Jody gave to me that she had been reading by Dr. Helen Rosevere. It is entitled Living Sacrifice Whittled to be Willing to be Whittled as an Arrow. Helen Rosevere was born in England in 1925. Although deeply religious, she was lost. World War II upset her faith in God. But while in medical school, some Christian friends invited her to a conference where she trusted Christ and surrendered to be a missionary all in the same night. She served in medical missions in the Congo. In 1964, during the Simba Rebellion, many missionaries were killed. She was brutally beaten. She was raped. She was held captive for five months. Uh, she was rescued, and then a year later, she returned to the Congo to continue to reach people for the Lord. She actually helped start two hospitals. In her book, Living Sacrifice, this is what she writes. At our missionary training center, I was taught 
to count the cost before signing on the dotted line to be a willing member of this mission and prepared to obey its rules. It was clear that, among other things, the cost involved the definite probability of leaving home, leaving loved ones, remaining single, leaving my job, and my future pension. You see, Jesus did exactly what that mission board did in England. He teaches us here to, to count the cost. I want you to count the cost before you sign up on the dotted line. So listen closely to his words in verse 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is asking for an extreme commitment. Take up your cross. Like he asked Helen, take up your cross means willing, willing to leave your job, willing to leave your country, willing to leave your family, willing to leave your security and your safety, willing to leave your retirement package, willing to leave your comfort and return for what? You're going to give it up for what? Oh, the benefits are out of this world. The benefits are beyond this world, not to mention the great peace in this world. Now today the cross is an accepted symbol of love, of sacrifice. People wear crosses on their jewelry. Uh, we see it on the outside of churches. We see it on the inside of churches. We see crosses embroidered on, on Bibles. Uh, we see it on t-shirts. I mean, crosses are everywhere in society. But when Jesus said the word cross, it would have brought to their minds a picture of a violent death, the capital punishment of a crim criminal. It was so horrible that no Roman citizen would ever be crucified. And so the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, when he was sentenced to death, do you know how he was executed? He was beheaded because it was forbidden by law for a Roman citizen to hang on a cross and endure such suffering. Jesus is demanding total commitment from those who choose to follow him even unto physical death. It is dishonest. It is dishonest to neglect the part of the message that following Christ includes a full surrender. And so, Jesus gives the call to life and death devotion. Jesus was sentenced to death. He was forced to carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and then he was crucified there. Jesus was carrying uh, the crossbar or the cross itself on his shoulder. It weighed probably about 80 pounds. He had lost a lot of blood following the scourging, and it was through the help of Simon of Cyrene that he made his way all the way to Calvary. We know that this man trusted Christ the Savior because his son is a Christian, and we find him in the book of Romans. So Jesus literally took up his cross. 
Take up your cross. Take up your cross. Would you say that clearly with me today? Take up your cross. Again, take up your cross. This is what he is saying of his disciples. <clears throat> For Jesus, <clears throat> the cross essentially meant four things. Here we go. For Jesus, the cross meant opposition. The cross meant opposition. Many Jews opposed him. And that led to his death. John 1.11, he came into his own. His own received him not. There's the opposition. Now the cross is an execution tool. It was used to execute the worst kind of criminals, murderers, rapists, terrorists. When Jesus is crucified, he is being treated as one of the most worst criminals imaginable. The cross meant opposition. The cross meant for Jesus shame. Jesus had to carry the cross for quite a distance. Many of you have walked that road. It's called the Via Della Rosa. And so a crowd would, would line the street, and as a, 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 a criminal was taken to the execution site, people would shout, they would jeer, they would spit, they would throw things uh, at you as you would walk to that place. Then when you get ex to the execution site, they would strip you of your clothes to hang there for naked for hours. And the crowd would continue to shout and jeer and mock and throw things. The crucifixion was an incredibly shameful, shameful experience that Jesus went through for you and me. The third thing the cross meant for Jesus was suffering. The cross was specifically designed for the victim to experience the most excruciating pain. In addition to the, the nails in his hands, the nail in his feet, Pilate trying to, to uh, uh, appease the bloodthirsty crowd had ordered Jesus to be scourged with the cat of nine tails. And that is a Roman whip that would be embedded with, with uh, sharp stone and sharp pieces of metal and they ripped his back apart, the crown of thorns upon his head. And as he was nailed to that cross, most people died of suffocation on the cross. And so what would happen is, he'd have, as his body would begin to sag, he'd have to pull with the strength of his arms to pull himself up, his back scraping on that wooden beam. And that would bring more suffering. And as long as he could hold that, and then he would release it, and his body would slide down once again. Up and down. Up and down. For six hours, Jesus endured slow, long, painful suffering. He experienced every bit of it for you and me. For Jesus, the cross meant opposition, it meant suffering, it meant shame, and then ultimately it meant death. The cross was not a tool to torture someone for a while and then let them go. No. What's the goal of the cross? The goal of the cross is death. That's the purpose, to kill people. And once you were hung upon those two beams of wood, you were not coming back. During the crucifixion, Jesus experienced all four of these things. He experienced opposition and shame, unimaginable suffering. He experienced the death of the cross. Now that's what taking up the cross meant for Jesus. Now some teach, some teach that the cross was an X. Some teach that the cross was a pole. 
But the Bible gives us two indications why it was a traditional T cross. First of all, there was a sign over or above his head, and that sign said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Uh, there are some cults that teach that if you have the sign of the cross as a T, that that's a mark of the devil, and that you shouldn't participate in that. Now let me give you the second reason why I believe the traditional T cross is accurate is because when Jesus said to Peter, when he said to Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death, you're going to die crucifixion, and they're going to stretch out your hands. So we know there had to be a, a sign above his head, so there had to be a post that would go up this way, and we know that his hands would have to be stretched out, and so those are the two reasons why I believe that the T-cross is the traditional cross that Jesus died upon. I have to believe when Jesus says to us, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and what? What? Take up your cross, that he is warning us that when we choose to follow him, we can expect to experience those same four things as well. And so look with me on page three of your notes. When we follow Jesus, we will experience opposition. I mean, if you're attempting to live out your faith at work, if you're attempting to live out your faith at school with extended family in the neighborhood, guess what? You have already experienced opposition, haven't you? Uh, I mean, there's going to be people that will uh, oppose you because of your faith. People don't get mad because you drive a red car. Uh, people don't get mad because you wear an Eagles sweatshirt or Steelers or Cowboys or Redskin jacket. Well, maybe downtown Philadelphia they'll get mad at you, okay? Uh, but, what, but when people get mad at you for your faith, Jesus said, they're not mad at you. They're mad at, they're mad at me. They're mad at me. So he says, don't you get upset. Don't you get worried about that because they're mad at me and they're really not mad at you. He said, just simply rejoice and be exceeding glad. When we follow Jesus, we will experience shame. Have you ever had a family member, ever had a co-worker, ever had a classmate, even an old friend, relentlessly make fun of you for what you believe? You believe the Bible? Don't you know that's nothing uh, but a book filled with old stories that aren't true? How could you be so stupid? How could you believe that? Have you ever had anyone try and shame you into sinning? A boyfriend, a girlfriend who says things like, well, well, if you really love me, you would do what I want you to do. Don't be a killjoy. When you choose to follow Jesus, when you choose to be a disciple, the world is going to be right there to try and shame you out of it. When we follow Jesus, we will experience suffering. Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When we follow Jesus, we will experience death. Do you know when Jesus said this to the 12 men, the 12 disciples, all of them died a martyr's death for their faith except two, Judas and John. Though there were many who were being martyred every week around the globe for their Christian faith, that is not going to happen to most of us sitting here this morning, is it? Not going to happen. Uh, I am glad to report to you that Pastor Gu in China has finally been released from prison. 
And so we rejoice that God answered our prayers on his behalf. But there are going to be others this week. They're going to die for their faith. Now, since most of us aren't going to be martyred for our faith, how does this apply to us? We're going to experience a different kind of death. The kind of death that Jesus calls us to is a death to self. It is a death to selfishness. Jesus calls us to put the old self to death, to die, to forfeit the sinful pleasures, to experience a new spiritual life in him. When you choose to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to follow him into that death. Look what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Romans 6, he says, knowing this, our old man is crucified with him. The body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And so as true followers of Jesus Christ, we're going to experience opposition. We're going to experience shame. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience death. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pastor, you're trying to get me to sign on the dotted line to become a Christian so I can go through these difficult things of suffering and shame and opposition. Boy, I just, I just can't wait to, to sign up and, and become a follower of Jesus. Well, I want you to know that right in the middle of the scary and difficult challenge our Lord, our Lord made to his potential disciples... He offers us two hopes. I want you to see them on page four. Two magnificent promises. First of all is we are not alone. We are not alone. We experience these hardships because we are following a Savior who already went through it first. This is what makes following Jesus different from all of the other religions. When you experience opposition at work, at school, from family, Jesus knows what it feels like. Uh, do you remember there was a time when they came to Jesus, his half-brothers, and they said, Jesus, Jesus, stop! You're embarrassing us. You're teaching what you're saying, what people are doing. You're embarrassing us. Come home to Nazareth. Stop it. Stop what you're doing. He understands opposition. When you experience shame, when others are shaming you for your faith, Jesus knows that shame. When you experience suffering, Jesus has already faced suffering. No matter what you face in life, no matter what kind of pain you go through, no matter how hard the opposition, he's already felt it. He's already experienced it himself. Right now, there are some here, and you are experiencing your own version of opposition and shame and suffering. And we're all struggling with the death of our extreme selfishness. I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone. There are other people, and they're going through similar experiences. More importantly, you're worshiping a God who has gone through all of this for you. He knows exactly how you feel. He knows exactly what you're going through, and He cares. He cares. That's the first hope we have. When we enter into those things that 
that we are not alone. Second reason we have hope is that for Jesus, the cross is not the end of the story. The cross is not the end of the story. You see, the opposition Jesus faced didn't end in opposition. It ended in reconciliation with the Father. The shame Jesus faced didn't end in shame. It ended in honor, seated at the right hand of the Father. The suffering Jesus went through didn't end in suffering. It ended in peace, bringing an end to the battle of sin and its penalty. And then the death that Jesus faced didn't end in death. Oh, they thought when they put the nails in his hands, they put the nails in his feet, they thought that was the end of Jesus. But it wasn't. It ended in life. It ended in resurrection. Because three days later, uh, by the might of his own power, by the might of the power of God the Father, by the might of the power of the Spirit of God, Jesus arose from the dead. And he is alive forevermore. Up from the grave he arose. Take up your cross is an invitation. It's an invitation to know that just as Jesus' opposition wasn't the end of the story, neither is yours. Just as Jesus' shame was not the end of the story, neither is yours. Just as Jesus' suffering was not the end, neither is yours. And just as his death didn't end in death, neither will yours. I mean, this is so important to understand because for all of history, for all of history, until Jesus came, those four things in a word. Sin brought tragedy into this world, didn't it? Remember the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3? They lived in innocence. They lived in the Garden of Eden, and they were opposed by Satan. Eve was deceived, and Adam chose to sin. And what happened when they, when they fell into that opposition and they sinned, what happened is they were ashamed. They discovered their nakedness, and they tried through man-made religion to make fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And, and after that shame, uh, that sin brought suffering into the world, and so hate and lust and greed and violence and disease and war and all, all that suffering came was born into the human race and out of that came what? well, death and that was the story of mankind until Jesus came now here's something to understand these four things they're part of life, aren't they? if you're honest you have been experiencing these four things even before you became a Christian. You have experienced sin. That's opposition to God. Because you live in opposition to God, you feel shame because of the sins and the mistakes, the things you say, the things you've done. In life, you will experience suffering. And some of you are going through unimaginable suffering, a pain that won't go away. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe your family is still reeling from some type of past abuse. And I'm here to say that Jesus is the only cure for your pain and for your suffering. And worse than all of that, someday you will experience death. It's a fact of life. We will experience these four things. And without Jesus, opposition is just opposition. End of story. Without Jesus, shame is just shame, end of story. Without Jesus, suffering is just more painful. Without Jesus, 
Well, death becomes eternal. But Jesus came, and because of the cross, he made sure that those four things don't have the final word in your life. Do not leave this auditorium today without making the decision to remove the power of opposition, to remove the grip that shame has on your heart, to remove the suffering that you're going through. You can let Jesus remove the power of death in your life. We may think that the command to take up your cross sounds very scary. You may think that it sounds dangerous and hard, like we have to prepare for a life of suffering and pain and difficulty. But what Jesus invites you to do is take up your cross. He's actually saying, I invite you to choose life. I invite you to choose blessing. I invite you to choose uh, an intimate relationship with God. I invite you to have this incredible and eternal life better than you can ever imagine. And so that's what the invitation is he's making to us. Whatever opposition you are facing today, whatever shame you're feeling right now, whatever suffering you're going through right now or next year or even one day when you die, that is not the end of the story. The end of your story is a resurrection. The end of your story is hope and love and grace and, and a relationship with God. Don't let death have the final word in your life. If you will make the commitment to become a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, he'll have the final word, and it's a good word. And maybe you haven't made that decision because you are afraid of the opposition that'll come from family, that'll come from friends. Maybe you're so ashamed of the mistakes you've made and the sins you've done uh, that you thought that God would not forgive you. Maybe the suffering you're going through is so bad and you can't understand why God would allow or cause this to happen to you. And so I want you to listen. I want you to listen to missionary Helen Rosevere as she talks about her service to Christ. She's now in heaven. But I want you to know that she, she went to the Congo and she went through a time of suffering and then she was rescued and went back to England and then she returned. She returned. Now you can read about it, but it's another thing to listen to her talk about her attitude and the perspective that she had going through these things as she took up her cross, as she followed Jesus. And I just got to tell you, when I, when I listen, when I begin to understand her attitude, her perspective, it just makes me feel like How strong is my commitment? How weak is my commitment? And so I'm going to ask you for the next eight minutes, would you, just, would you just open your heart? Would you just listen to her spirit and attitude and perspective that she has on following Jesus? Uh, and uh, it was a horrific night. I was... Uh, 
they came into the house and said they were looking for whatever and, and they smashed everything they ransacked the house and they didn't find what they were looking for I didn't happen to possess a radio or anything like this but um, then they turned on me and it was a uh, there was a moment I was out of the veranda of the house at one moment and this little I don't know what sergeant major of the rebel soldiers stood there with a gun pointed with a pistol pressed against my forehead uh, and I don't know if it was loaded or not, but I presumed it was. Uh, and he said, say that Lumumba, that was their patron saint, say that Lumumba is the saviour of the world. You know, I wasn't praying, I wasn't thinking, but I just knew that wasn't true. <laughs> I knew the only one saviour of the world, and that was Jesus. So I just said, no, never. Jesus is the only saviour of the world. I, I think in my heart, I think I was actually praying he would shoot. It would have been quick, clean, finished. But, but uh, out on the out on the courtyard was one of my junior students from the college uh, and uh, he was being held by these men and he broke loose and he threw himself between me and this little soldier said you don't touch her but over my dead body and they turned on him and they beat him up so savagely uh, I didn't know till well, two years later that he was not killed actually he survived but it was mm -hmm. terrible terrible then they drove me down the corridor of my home and somehow in that moment I, I think I was saying, God, where are you? What, whatever's going on? And there was suddenly a tremendous, what can I say, consciousness. God was there. He was big. Uh, and he was there was a moment where you thought you'd been abandoned. Well, I, I don't think I ever lost my faith in God, but I just felt he wasn't looking after me. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, and, and suddenly I knew he was. And he was in charge and that these rebel soldiers were very small compared to the almightiness of God uh, and uh, as they drove me down the corridor I think he spoke to me but I didn't hear words it was afterwards looking back I had to ask the Lord what do you actually say put into words for me I think what he said was can you thank me and my heart was saying no this has gone too far I knew what lay ahead. I could see the whole thing was horrible. Uh, and he said, can you thank me for trusting you? And I thought, this is unbelievable. I know I trust him, but I never thought of him trusting me. It was revolutionary to think that he trusted me. And in this second, I could see what he was saying. I thought I could trust you. I thought you wouldn't bite me. <laughs> and God was saying, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience? even if I never tell you why. And I, even in the midst of the darkness, it was, I'd only split minute, all this, uh, it was, dear Lord, I don't know what you're saying, I don't know why you're saying it, I don't know who will ever be blessed by this, but if this is part of your plan, yes, thank you for trusting me. And immediately, uh, I was flooded with a sense of the enormous peace, peace of God, it was wonderful. I just knew, it, it was as though he said, all I want of you is the loan of your body. Uh, and it was Jesus in me. They weren't fighting me, they were fighting Jesus. Uh, and all I had to do was say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. You're in me, you, 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 just as you want. And uh, it didn't stop the pain, the humiliation, the cruelty. Uh, it didn't take that away. It was all there. But suddenly it was with him and for him. And it just revolutionized everything. It was wonderful. Later, years later, when, when we came home on furlough, uh, we were rescued by mercenary soldiers. We were sent home. And I talked to all over the United Kingdom and some every now and again a woman would come up to me at the end of women's meetings and say but why did God allow and then they just pause they, why did a God of love 
allow suffering really they were saying to me why did God of love allow you to suffer you were a missionary you were out there serving him I thought you know we never asked that question so I didn't have an answer because we never asked the question and I just thought Lord you're just so wonderful and you're so marvelous and it's such a privilege that he is our master our friend our savior our lord our king uh, that, that, that he's the right to anything and I'd, I'd given my life to him so why not <laughs> well that's one of your teachings living sacrifice Romans 12 and 1 submit your body a living sacrifice yes. God was calling this in in a way you never would have anticipated in that night prior to your teeth being kicked out at, by a rebel boot prior to being brutally raped twice were you aware that he wasn't abandoning you he was there and he was going to do something yes. in this, through this yes. darkest most evil experience that you couldn't at that moment see it really is though he wrote one word I could, I could almost read it in the sky, privilege. That, the, that, that, that right from the night I was converted, the, 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 the leader of the conference where I was gave me a Bible. I'd never owned a Bible before. And he wrote in my Bible, Philippians 3.10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the privilege of the fellowship of his sufferings. I'd been a Christian about half an hour, and he was saying to me it would be a privilege to suffer for Jesus. And right from that day, the word privilege has really underlined everything in my Christian life. And it was privilege. He, he asked me for something. He said, I want the loan of your body. Uh, it was amazing. Almighty God, the great creator, heavenly father. Uh, and uh, it was something I had to respond to. And it was privilege. And I think it's this word privilege which has made such a difference. It's just because it's a privilege to be given the opportunity to serve him or to suffer. Uh, and it, suffering's so tiny. To get in perspective, for me, five months, uh, and I've lived 85 years. What's five months? It's terribly small. Now, I've read books of other people, uh, uh, Pastor Wormbrandt, who went through nine years, I think, of uh, in prison, in prison by, by himself. Uh, and terrible tortures and uh, I've heard of pastor, I can't remember his name now in China, terrible imprisonment and the wicked, wicked things they did to him uh, mine was very, very small How long was the healing emotionally, spiritually out of this terrible abuse? When I got home, it was as though one woke up from a nightmare and I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to, I wanted to die I wanted to go to be with Jesus and it really took three months I got home on New Year's Day, and in late March, early April, I don't remember now, I went with my mother for Easter to our cottage home in, in, in um, UK, and it was there at Palm Sunday service that the Lord eventually got through to me to stop being a fool. Uh, <laughs> it was me. I wasn't wanting to go on living. You see, quite a lot of our people were murdered, and other people said, there was a lovely uh, American boy uh, and he was murdered and people said his mother prayed for him your mother prayed for you why did God answer her prayers and not his prayers I thought that's ridiculous we thought he got the best part he got to be with Jesus I was still down here suffering <laughs> ladies and gentlemen 
That's the attitude of a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you and I might not suffer the way she suffered, but we're supposed to have the attitude that she has. And so when she became a Christian, the man who was speaking to share the gospel gave her a Bible, wrote Philippians 3.10 in her Bible and said, maybe someday you will have the privilege of suffering for Jesus Christ. And so she says, there is really no cost. There is really no cost. Only the privilege of serving the King of Kings. And I think your life will be so much better and mine as well if we take that attitude and that perspective that I'm going to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus and stop focusing on other people and stop focusing on the stuff that doesn't matter and start focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and following Him, our Savior, our friend, our God. There in your notes, if you've never made that decision to follow him, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is calling you to take up your cross, which means come, come, and live this new life. Be born again. Love and serve the King of Kings until the day you die. That's faithful, that's loyal. That's a genuine follower of our Savior. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who went through opposition and shame and suffering and death and rose again that we could be saved, that we could be born again into the family of God. And Father, I pray that each one here today will have a true understanding of what it means to be sold out, to be surrendered, to be a genuine child of God a follower of Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, you say, Pastor, I, I, I am saved. I know that I would go to heaven. I'm certain that heaven's my home. You don't have a faith that's, that's like the, the seed that fell on the, uh, the, the rocky soil or where the thorns and the weeds come up and choke it out. I'm not talking about a faith that will one day abandon Jesus. I'm talking about a faith that will last a lifetime. And that's the kind of extreme commitment you made when you received Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a church member. Maybe you've been baptized. But you have a false profession. I'm asking if you have a true profession, a true possession of Christ in your heart. And if you have that, would you raise your hand as a testimony that I am born again into God's family all over this congregation. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You're here today and you say, Pastor, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but I have doubt. And right now the Spirit of God is, is convicting me of my sin. He is knocking on the door of my heart. I've got doubt. I want to get this settled today. I understand what it means to sign on the dotted line to become a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, and that's what I want. I want to lead you in that salvation prayer to receive him today. Anyone at all, simply raise your hand, hold it up high. I want to be saved. I want to trust Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Before you leave this auditorium today, you can have Christ in your heart. Anyone at all, I want to be saved I want to know that heaven's my home and that my sins are forgiven.
Christian, may I ask you, uh, do you have a heart that says, I'm willing to make extreme sacrifice, extreme commitment because of extreme love? If you've been so distracted by the things of the world, by people and things and the pursuit of pleasure, and you've, you've let them crowd out Christ out of your heart and mind, tonight may you turn from that shallow faith and may you take up your cross looking unto Jesus and love him with all of your heart. Father, may you bless in this invitation time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand together, as we sing that wonderful song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that's what you need to do is take your eyes off of everything else, looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, and give him your all to make extreme commitment. Maybe you want to pray this altar. Maybe there's a decision you need to make to be baptized, to become part of the church, to pray for someone else. You come as we sing together on the first verse. To Malachi chapter 3, we'll be turning to a couple of passages. Malachi chapter 3, be sure to pull it out on your phone. If you don't have a hard copy with you tonight or a Bible there in front of you in the bench, uh, we are taking a couple of Sunday nights for a time of question and answers, Q&A. Uh, between services, someone came to me and asked me the question, uh, mentioned in the second service, but for those who are in the first, I, I didn't know the answer to this Bible question, so I'll share it with you now. The question was, why didn't Noah go fishing on the ark? He only had two worms, all right? <laughs> he only had two worms, and so that's why. So you can find a lot of Bible questions and answers when you come to church, so stick with us. Uh, two weeks ago, we discovered that we are following a biblical pattern of what the Apostle Paul did on his missionary journeys. Uh, he did the dialogama, di uh, dialoguing, the question and answer. He'd go to the synagogues and lead people to Christ. They'd throw them out, then he'd start a New Testament church. Uh, here's the first question. Why ask Bible questions? What's the purpose of asking questions? And the answer is to get answers, to get God's answers to truth. We study the Bible uh, to find out what God, the New Testament church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Uh, why study God's word? Well, God commands us to study in uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. It will help us. It'll help us to help others. And then we find the cardinal rule of Bible interpretation, and that is interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. God does not contradict himself, never has, never will. Any apparent contradiction just means you need to dig a little deeper, study a little harder uh, to find out the answer. Uh, why study God's Word? Number four, so we can avoid doctrinal errors. Wouldn't it be great if we knew which of our doctrinal errors that we're holding on to so we can, uh, can let go of them? We can avoid doctrinal errors that have been taught by confused teachers. The fundamentals of the faith are set in stone, just like the Ten Commandments. There are a few beliefs that are basic requirements in order to be a Christian. If you don't believe these, you're not a Christian. Like what? Like Jesus is the Son of God. 
Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Uh, like salvation is by faith, like the Bible is the word of God, uh, like the bodily resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. If you do not believe the fundamentals of the faith, then you're not a true Christian. But there are a lot of people who are truly saved, truly born again, but good-intentioned people taught them errors, taught them mistakes, false teachings, errors like speaking in tongues, errors like a belief that you can lose your salvation if you commit a particular sin, errors like that a Christian can be demon-possessed, errors like the rapture that doesn't happen at the beginning of the tribulation. It happens in the middle, or it happens at the end, or it doesn't even happen at all. There are many errors or false teachings that many sincere Christians hold to, but it does not mean that they are not born again. It does not mean that they're not forgiven and on their way to heaven. And it does not mean that God will not use them and that God will not bless them while they are in this journey and in this process of learning more accurate biblical truth. You say, are you, are you sure that God will use and bless people who do not hold to all of the finer truths of the Scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the evidence. The evidence... that God uses people in doctrinal error is this hymn book and every hymn book that has been printed, every conservative hymn book that has been printed in the last 100 years. You see, our hymn book and all hymn books are filled with authors that believe things and we wouldn't let those people teach a Sunday school class in our church. We wouldn't let those people preach from behind this pulpit. But they wrote great hymns, biblical hymns, accurate hymns, spiritual songs, even though they haven't yet attained to the accuracy of what we would find from a strong, sound, biblical New Testament church. But with diligent study, with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and with the teaching of godly pastors, they can be led to God's truth. They can be like the noble Bereans who search the Scriptures to see whether those things be so. And so we can avoid doctrinal errors, uh, secondly, by not being dogmatic on the why and the what-if questions. When we come to the why and the what if questions, they can be very difficult to answer. God has not told us everything. He has not given to us every answer in the universe. Now, he will once we get to heaven. Uh, Helen Rosevere, missionary Helen Rosevere, since God's message to her heart was, I'm going to let you suffer, and I'm not going to tell you why. Now, that's faith. She loved her Lord in spite of not having an answer to the why question. Uh, the what if question. What if Adam didn't eat the fruit? 
So with the whys and the what-if questions, we can join the last 2,000 years of other saints and just give our best answer, but we just don't know. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, why did God allow sin? Why did God allow sin? We don't know exactly why he allowed sin, but we know that he did. And we know that he has never made a mistake. Uh, so here's something for us to consider. It's called the problem of theodicy. Why did God permit evil? Here's a thought. He allowed evil so that he can ultimately destroy it so that it will no longer exist in eternity future. And we believe that. There will not be sin in eternity future. How about a Christian being demon-possessed? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? The answer is no, absolutely not. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. The Bible says that our body is the temple of God, the house of God, uh, and the spirit of a demon cannot dwell in the same house as the house of God. Where do little children go when they die? The answer is heaven. It's heaven. When a child is conceived, God creates a living soul that will live somewhere forever. And at the moment of con conception, that new soul has a sin nature and eventually will sin. But in the record book of sins in Revelation chapter 20, there are no sins recorded for babies. You cannot have a record of sins until they are committed, and that cannot happen until a child reaches the age of accountability. So I stand with a vast number of Bible teachers that hold the position that babies who die either in the womb or outside the womb, they go directly to heaven. Now let's stand together. I'd like to read to you from Malachi chapter 3. What is the book of remembrance in the last book of the Old Testament? Now, in these short verses, there is a three-way conversation between backsliding Jewish complainers, faithful Jews, and then with God himself. And you can pick out who's who pretty quickly. Malachi chapter 3, and we pick it up here in verse 14. Ye have said... It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. May we pray. Uh, Father, thank you that we have the word of God. Thank you that every word was inspired by the Spirit of God through the men that you chose to give us your truth and that your word is truth. Lord, thank you that because of the Holy Scriptures that we have learned how to be saved, to be born again. But Father, we're here tonight. And we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we seek to be able to go through Scriptures would you illuminate our hearts and minds with the truth of God, and may we hold to the truth and love the truth and believe it and live it, sing it and share it with others. I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of remembrance. God does not need a book to remember anything. He is omniscient. He knows everything. But he often communicates for us in a way to help us to understand what he is doing. In the Bible, we read about different books that we find in heaven, like the book of the living, Psalm 139, 16, like the book of life, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, like the book of the record of sins of the unsaved, Revelation 20, 12, and here, Malachi 3, 16, the book of remembrance. Look at verse 16. Uh, then they that feared the Lord, these are the faithful Jews, spake one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. A book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, for them that thought upon his name. Now, in Malachi chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, God is confronting backsliding Jews. Do you know why? Because they brought sick animals, sickly animals for sacrifice. He confronts them for teaching error. He confronts them for not being faithful in marriage. He confronts them for complaining about the futility of serving the Lord. And then he pronounces judgment on them. But God knows that those who love him, those who serve without murmuring, and so he, he, he tells the faithful remnant not to worry. He encourages them by saying all of their faith and all of their good deeds have been written down in a book of remembrance, and they will be rewarded. And so the readers would have been familiar with this. Uh, in ancient Persia, scribes wrote down the names and actions of those who did service to the king. Why? Because those servants would be rewarded. It's interesting that archaeology has discovered thousands of these ancient records. Do you remember the book of Esther? When the king could not sleep, having a sleepless night, and he asked for a reading of the court records. The Bible says in Esther chapter 6, verse 1, uh, he thought it would be uh, like Samanex and put him to sleep. And as he's listening uh, to the record of the deeds of those in the kingdom, he discovers that Mordecai had saved his life from an assassination attempt. And as the king thought about how to reward Mordecai for his good deed, early in the morning in walked Mordecai. I'm sorry, and walk Haman. And the king asked, What shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor? And Haman thinks, Oh, he wants to honor me. And so Haman gave a great answer. Put the man on your royal horse. Uh, put a crown on his head and march him through the streets and say, Here is the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king says, Great idea. Um, uh, Haman, I want you to go and do that. Everything you said, do it to Mordecai. Ah, do it to Mordecai. And that is exactly what happened. That was like a book of remembrance, a book of good deeds, and we're going to, to reward you because of the good deed you did to the king. And God is writing down the things that we do. God is writing down the things that we say. He wants to reward us. And so the book of remembrance in the Old Testament is just like the judgment seat of Christ in the New Testament. It motivates me, it challenges me not to serve the Lord with a complaining spirit, not to serve the Lord with a, a, a murmuring tongue. Why? <coughs> that negative spirit 
will result in a loss of reward. Second John, verse 8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, which we have done, but that we receive a full reward. It's possible not to receive a full reward because we fumble, because we stumble, because we disregard a spirit-filled life. Here's a question. Why did the Egyptians despise the shepherds? Genesis 46, 34. Uh, didn't they need shepherds to take care of their livestock? So switching gears here a bit, going back to Genesis. Uh, the reference to shepherds being an abomination to the Egyptians, it's actually mentioned twice. Uh, the first time is when, when uh, uh, Jacob came down with his sons. They moved to Egypt. The second time is a reference 400 years later when Pharaoh said to Moses, uh, Pharaoh said, go ahead and sacrifice to your God, but I, I don't want to let you go. I want you to do it right here in Egypt. And this is Moses' answer, Moses, Exodus 8.26. Moses said, it is not meat. It, it is not good to do so, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? And so when, when Jacob and his sons moved down, uh, the, the Bible says that the Egyptians despised the shepherds. 400 years later, uh, the Pharaoh says, go ahead and go ahead and do your sacrifice. And, and, and uh, Moses says, we can't do that. It is such an abomination that, that the Egyptians will stone us. And so the question is why? The Bible does not tell us why the Egyptians despised the occupation of shepherds. Jewish scholars have actually been baffled for centuries over an accurate answer to explain why the Egyptians uh, didn't like shepherds. Here are a few suggestions from historical sources. Some Phoenician shepherds, there was a time that they came into Egypt and they committed awful cruelties and they murdered a multitude of people and for that reason they were despised. Someone else said it was known that the Israelites burned most of the animal in sacrifice, and that was abominable to the Egyptians since it was a wasteful destruction of such good food. And then historian Herodotus says there are seven different classes or seven castes in Egypt, and the shepherds being a lowly class because they lived with the herds, they were often dirty, they didn't have good hygiene, and since most of the Egyptians were farmers, they viewed the shepherds as rude, as crude, and as barbaric. Ancient monuments depict shepherds as withered and emaciated. And here's what I find interesting. That shepherd, shepherd is one of the metaphors of who? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He is the great shepherd who watches over us today. He is the chief shepherd who is yet to appear. And he is, as, as David said, he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. And yet, like the Egyptians of old, our shepherd is an abomination to this world. Many religions talk about a Jesus who was not virgin-born. They talk about a Jesus who did not perform miracles. They talk about a Jesus who did not rise from the dead. But that's who he is. He is the true shepherd. 
and we come to him on his terms, uh, not our terms. Okay, now moving to the New Testament, a practical question in ministry. Uh, what ministries in church can a divorced person be involved in? Uh, what about leadership roles for someone who has been divorced? Well, good question. Uh, the answer to that question is found not only in the Bible, but it is also determined by the God-given leadership of each individual church, meaning, meaning that different churches have different answers to who can be involved in various leadership roles in a church. And so if you were to ask 10 pastors on the topic of marriage and remarriage, you will get 11 different answers, right? Uh, there's that varied of opinions regarding the topic of, of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Now, the qualifications for pastors and deacons are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So let's turn over there, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tonight. Specific qualifications <clears throat> for all other leadership roles in the church are not specifically given in the Bible, but are determined by individual local churches. That is, who can teach a Sunday school class, who can sing in the choir, and many other areas of leadership and service. But there are two offices, pastor and deacon, that are found here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. Now, before we get to the passage, if you were saved before you came here, you have already discovered that here at Valley Forge Baptist, we do some things different than other Bible-believing churches. For instance, many churches observe the Lord's table at their church once a week, or once a month, or once a quarter, or once every six months. We observe the Lord's table every two to two and a half months. Why the difference? Well, since Jesus did not give us a command as to how often to partake of the Lord's table, Jesus has delegated that decision to the pastoral leadership of each individual local church as to when to have it. And it is the responsibility of the church family to follow that decision. It's not right or wrong, but it is a local church decision. But new Christians often ask, shouldn't we all believe the exact same thing? And the answer is yes and no. When it comes to the fundamentals of the faith, when it comes to the apostles' doctrine, when it comes to sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, we absolutely should believe the same things. But Paul said, in doubtful things or areas not clearly defined with a thus saith the Lord, there will be differences, Romans chapter 14. And so over the years, over 35 and a half years as a pastor, I have discovered that some Bible-believing churches in our area that God has greatly used in the past hold to certain positions in certain areas that we do not follow. For instance, some churches in our area have deaconesses. We do not. Some churches in our area have three offices in the church, identified as pastor, elder, and deacon. 
We do not. The New Testament clearly identifies only two offices in the church, pastor and deacon. Acts chapter 20 shows that elder, pastor, bishop is the same person. 1 Peter 5, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses leadership, bishops and pastors, two leaders in the church. Some churches in our area, uh, divorce people are restricted from leadership roles, including teaching Sunday school class prohibited from singing in the choir. Some churches in our area practice foot washing. I want you to know, I believe in foot washing, all right? Do it at home, all right? Do it at home. We're not going to do it here. Uh, it's not an ordinance. There are two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table. But some churches in our area practice foot washing. Uh, uh, again, some churches in our area, they have weekly communion or monthly communion. Some churches in our area practice infant baptism. Do you know that many people over the last four decades have been saved at a church down in the mainline called Church of the Savior? They preach the gospel, people get saved, but if you want to take your baby there to be baptized, they will baptize your baby. Now, it's not really a baptism because baptism is for believers by immersion after you get saved. And so if you sprinkle water on a baby, it's not a baptism. What is it? You're getting them wet, right? You're getting them wet, but it's not a baptism. But people have been saved uh, at, uh, at that church. Many have been saved over uh, several, several decades. So here's my point. Just because you were taught something different at another church or something you heard on the radio or something you read in a book, it doesn't mean that it is biblically accurate or it doesn't mean that it's the only way to be able to do it. Just as some of you had to study out for yourself teachings or practices as you have grown as a Christian or as you have come here, uh, so... I have had to do the same thing. I was taught that the only baptism from other churches to accept into membership are believers' baptism from a Baptist church. But I soon discovered that there were some strong New Testament churches uh, in our area that didn't have the name Baptist. They might have said that they were Baptistic, but they didn't have the name Baptist. In this area... And this area is the headquarters of the American Baptist Convention. When you drive 422 uh, east to King of Prussia, it's kind of hard to see now, but there's a circular building, and I was told that that was the Holy Donut. Anybody ever hear that? The Holy Donut. And 100 years ago, I'm telling you, 120 years ago, uh, they were American Baptists, and they sent out the first Baptist missionary, uh, Adoniram Judson, to Burma, and they were uh, a powerhouse for Jesus Christ. But I soon found out, knocking on doors and talking to people, that, that they are now an apostate denomination. They ordain homosexual men to the ministry. They, they pray at the end of a service to mother, father, God. They neuter the Bible and take out God the son and make it God the child and God the father to make it God the parent. Those people don't know God. They don't know, they have a form of religion, a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And so before I came to this area in 1984, other people said, you know, we don't want to be associated 
with the ABC convention because they don't believe the Bible. They don't follow the Bible. And so they chose names with chapel or tabernacle or Bible fellowship to, to, to not be associated with those people that denied the word of God. And that was all new to me. And I discovered that uh, there were Bible-believing churches, not called Baptists, but they held to the fundamentals of the faith, and they were New Testament churches that God was using. And so for me, for me, I had to understand that, that, that whether in life, whether in family or church, we have all discovered that, that pride and ignorance can keep us from growing in God's truth. Pride and ignorance can keep us from growing in God's truth. And it is more important to be committed to the truth than to tradition. Now, if the tradition is based on truth, great. But if the tradition is not based on truth, you need to be a noble Berean follow the word of God, and toss the tradition. We have an example of someone that God used mightily when he changed his position to a more biblically accurate position. His name is Apollos. When Aquila and Priscilla expounded unto him more perfectly God's truth, he readily accepted it. Even though he was a brilliant man, even though he was an eloquent speaker, his humility allowed him to grow in God's truth. In fact, I believe, I believe because he ditched pride and ignorance, he's the most likely candidate as the author of the book of Hebrews. Now please turn here to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's just read the opening couple of verses. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, verses uh, 1 to Seven are the qualifications for the office of pastor, bishop, elder, and verses 8 down through verse 13, the qualifications for the deacon. Verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, again, that's bishop, pastor, elder, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The qualification for church offices, it's the word blameless. Now, blameless is a summary term for all the other qualifications. And so we want to know what does blameless mean. It is a general term that means no valid accusation of wrongdoing can be made against this man. Blameless since being saved. Blameless since being saved. And that would be a good thing to write in the margin of your Bible. You say, are you sure it means after a person is saved? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Why do we know that? Because the man that God used to write this sentence was not blameless before he was saved. You see, the devil got a hold of Saul of Tarsus. The devil used Saul of Tarsus not only to persecute people, but he used him to kill, to murder Christians in the name of God. Paul was not blameless until he was saved. 
If you don't agree with the statement, blameless since being saved, then the Apostle Paul would be disqualified from ministry. Now, blameless is the general term, and now you have all these individual qualifications that, that kind of uh, uh, explain and expand upon the title of the term blameless. The next qualification, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Uh, literally, it means a one-woman man. A one-woman man. A man who is committed to one woman. This qualification speaks to the moral purity of a man, not his marital status. It means that he is, if he is married, he is madly in love with his wife. And I can, I can state to you tonight that myself and the four associate pastors are madly in love with our wives. I won't take the time to kiss her tonight, but I'll do that later. Uh, but I, for 23 and a half years, madly in love with my wife. And that's what the qualification. If he is a married man, he is madly in love with his wife. Now, here are the misinterpretations. So this husband of, of one wife speaks to the moral purity of man, not his marital status. So here are the common misinterpretations of the phrase husband of one wife. That this is a prohibition against polygamy. Prohibition against polygamy. That's not why Paul wrote it. Polygamy is uh, being married to more than one wife. Well, who would do that? I mean, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> polygamy uh, is clearly forbidden in Scripture, and a polygamist could not even be a church member, much less a church leader. That is a misinterpretation of the phrase husband of one wife. Another misinterpretation. It is barring men who remarried after the death of their wives. Well, that's a false interpretation uh, because the Bible encourages remarriage after widowhood. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 14. I, I would that the younger uh, women, uh, younger widows, marry. If you believe that interpretation, then then I've been disqualified for 23 and a half years because I married after being widowed, the husband of one wife. You see how it's a misinterpretation. Here's another misinterpretation. The exclusion of single men from ministry. From 1994 until 1996, I was a single man. Was I disqualified from ministry because I was not the husband of one wife during that time period? No. No, this is not a prohibition against single men in ministry. You say, how do you know? Because the man who wrote it, was he married or single? He was single. And so again, he's inspired by the Spirit of God. So we know these are misinterpretations of the phrase husband of one wife. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, he was single. Here's one. The exclusion of divorced men. The qualification of husband of one wife is not dealing with marital status. It is dealing with moral purity. The Bible does not prohibit all remarriage after divorce. The teaching on remarriage, it's very specific. 
It's found in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It's found in Matthew 19, verse 9. It's found in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15. And we can look at that at another time. If God wanted to exclude divorced men in this sentence, there is a word for divorce in the New Testament. Do you know what the word for divorce is in the New Testament for divorce? It's the word? It's the word divorce. That's right. So I think it would be the right time for God to say right here, uh, I, I want to uh, prohibit a divorced man uh, from church leadership. That's not what he used. That's not what he used. You don't find it here. But here's what you do find. You find in verse 4 and verse 12, you find another qualification. And so drop down to verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house. You find it again in verse 12 referring to the deacon. One that ruleth well his own house. Now what does this mean? It means that the decisions a man makes in his home with his wife and children, they're to be wise decisions. They're to be godly decisions. Though not specifically stated, this certainly could apply to the issue of divorce. The divorce is most likely evidence of a spiritual weakness, but not always. Uh, there are some cases where, there, where there's been a, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a mental issue with one of the spouses and, and ended up in a divorce. The next obvious question then is, did the divorce, if there was a divorce, did it occur before salvation? The Apostle Paul wrote, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become, what? New. It does not appear that our past is to be a hindrance from serving Jesus Christ. Jesus went to Samaria, he stopped at a well, and the woman of the well, he led her to himself, and she was born again. And in that conversation, he asked, are you married? And what did she say? No, no. Uh, you've, been, you've been married, what, uh, uh, four times, and the man you're living with now, he is not your husband. Do you know that that lady went back to the town forgiven, saved, and she immediately became a dynamic witness telling others about Jesus Christ? God used her, even though she had all those divorces in her past and she had the adultery in her present. Now, because of the ambiguity regarding divorce, every local church, every local church is to make their decision led by the pastoral leadership of that church. As I've said, some churches in our area and around the country have refused divorced people from teaching Sunday school. They've refused divorced people from singing in the choir. I disagree with that position. I don't believe you can find that in the scriptures. You're adding to God's word something that he did not say. Regarding church offices of pastors and deacons, uh, there are various positions. Some churches refuse divorced men from being pastors or deacons. Some refuse divorced men from being ordained as pastors, but allow men to be deacons if the divorce was before salvation. Some allow divorced men to be pastors and deacons if enough time has passed and their current testimony is such that they fulfill blameless and they rule their own house well. 
Uh, Dr. John MacArthur, who has pastored the same church for 50 years, Grace Community Church, he states, if there has been a biblically permitted divorce, it must have been so far in the past as to have overcome a long pattern of solid family leadership. Now, I came from a church. I came from a church that was right in the middle of those different views that I have just described to you. They, they did not ordain men to the pastorate who had been divorced, but they allowed for men to be deacons if they met the requirement of 1 Timothy 3 and their divorce was prior to salvation. And I think all the years that I was there and the years since, in the last 40 years, I think they've had one man that, uh, that they did appoint as a deacon. I've held to that same position for 35 years. Hasn't changed because the Bible hasn't changed. And I hold to what the Bible says. That's the truth, not the tradition. So now the question is, who makes the call? Who makes the decision? And the answer to that is the church leadership, the pastoral staff. And so if you would, uh, turn with me to, uh, well, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I can also turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. But if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. The position of Valley Forge Baptist Temple has been a unanimous support of all the pastors. We have a senior pastor, myself, and four associate pastors. We have a dozen deacons. And the position of our church has the unanimous support of all your church leadership, God-ordained leadership, pastors and deacons. When it comes to the fundamentals of the faith, they are written in our Constitution. They are written in the Word of God. They are not changing. When it comes to managing the affairs of the church, it's my responsibility along with the pastors of our church to lead. It is the responsibility of the church family to follow. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5 says that we're to lead in humility. We're to lead as servants. There's to be servant leadership, and that has always been my goal. And trust, it's the goal of every level of of church leadership. <coughs> and so what do we find here in Hebrews 13? Let's look at that at uh, verse 7 and 17. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, their lifestyle. Verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. What I find here in Hebrews chapter 13, you can, you can believe it now or you can believe it in the future in heaven but it's going to come out the same way. Our responsibility as leaders is to pray, seek the truth of God, seek godly counsel, and lead. And your responsibility as a church family is to follow. And your reward is dependent upon your attitude and obedience of following the leadership that God places in your life. 
Will your pastors, will your deacons do everything perfectly? No, not even close, not even close. But with your prayers and with your love, with your support, we are committed to follow the Word of God as we learn and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. In the end, in the end, it is up to each local church to set their standard for leadership. If you're going to sing in the choir, if you're going to lead a ministry, lead the nursery, lead an outreach, uh, teach a Sunday school class, uh, lead uh, uh, in the youth ministry, the singles, uh, if you're going to lead an ABF, it is, your, it is, it is the, the leadership of the church is responsible to be able to set up the leadership standards for the leaders in the church. And then, of course, that's going to include the leadership of the offices of pastor and deacon. And so in the end, each local church sets up their standard for leadership based on what they believe the Word of God to be. And we have set our standard where many strong Bible-believing churches have stood uh, for decades, and we stand with the Word of God. Uh, question. Again, switching gears to Bible prophecy. How can I defend or explain Israel against replacement theology? Uh, what is replacement theology? Replacement theology says that God is finished with Israel. They say all the promises to Israel are canceled out. They believe that the church has replaced the Jewish people. All the promises that God the Father and Jesus made to the ethnic Jews have been transferred to the New Testament church. They say the Jews have been replaced. That's a lie. That's a false teaching. And that is the official teaching of Protestant and Catholic churches. Replacement theology. Where did it come from? Well, it didn't come from the Bible. Not at all. 5th century church father Augustine was the first to describe it, but he gained great popularity among the reformers, John Calvin, who started the Presbyterian church, Martin Luther, who is the leader of the Lutherans. In the last sermon before he died, Martin Luther called for all Jews to be driven out of Germany. You know, we, we uh, his, historically, we blame Hitler for the death of six million Jews. But if you visit the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., they appropriately, they rightly accuse Martin Luther for planting the seeds of hatred against the Jews in the 1500s. In 1994, the Lutherans finally apologized for Luther's statements against the Jews. Replacement theology. Not just the promises were transferred from the Jews to the Christians, but there's this hatred for the Jews. Where did that come from? That comes from Satan. That's demonic. Now, are you surprised that for the last hundred years, every conservative hymn book includes hymns written by Martin Luther? Say, how can that be? A man who planted the seeds of hate that resulted in the Holocaust of six million Jews. I want to say to you that it is another example that we choose our music based on the quality of the music 
not on the association of those who wrote it. Does that make sense? That's where we stand. That's where we have always stood and will continue to stand. To come up with this idea that there is no real earthly kingdom to fulfill those promises and they are fulfilled in the spiritual life of the church both now and in heaven, you have to deny God's promises. You have to basically say that, that when God called Israel his elect, when God gave them unconditional, unilateral, irrevocable promises, that he didn't keep those promises. What you're saying is, you're saying God is a liar that God is a liar. And so seminaries like Westminster, <coughs> the dozens of Protestant and Catholic seminaries, all deny more than half of the Bible that talks about Bible prophecy and God's promises. You see, God has a future plan for Israel. And he will keep his promises. You got the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. What did God promise to Abraham? He promised him a seed, a nation, a land, a blessing to the whole world. The promise to David. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. 1 Chronicles 17, 12 to 14. God repeats it. He expands the promise made to Abraham. The coming king, the Messiah, will literally rule on the earth from a city called... Jerusalem, The promise, the promise of the new covenant spoken by the prophets Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, uh, Jesus instituted the new covenant. Daniel 9, 24 to 27, so 69 weeks have occurred. The 70th week is yet to come in the tribulation. Ezekiel 36 to 39, uh, Jeremiah 31. Uh, 31, listen, listen to this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says, I'm going to scatter the Jews all the way around the world. And in the last days, I'm going to regather them in their land. I love to ask Presbyterians, why do you think the Jews are going back to the land of Israel? And they say, I don't know. I guess God wants them there. I say, yes, he does want them there because he said, in the last days, I'm going to bring them there. Jeremiah 37, you know the song, Dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones? Foot bone connected to the ankle bone. Ankle bone connected to the shin bone. Shin bone connected to the knee bone, thigh bone, hip bone, backbone, head bone. What is that song about? It's about the great valley of bones that Ezekiel saw that, that come together and the bones stand up with a skeleton, and God puts skin on them, and they stand up like a mighty army, and then this is what he says. This is what's going to happen. Israel, this valley of dry bones is a picture of the Jews scattered around the world, but in the last days, I'm going to bring them back to the land. And then the promise by Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. 
It's been happening for the last 140 years. Let me show you now with a, uh, a chart. Uh, I have sheets out in the foyer uh, entitled Signs of Christ's Return. Are we living in the last days? And the answer is yes. So here is the fulfillment. In 1880, there were 25,000 Jews in the land of Israel. 1917, the Balfour Declaration, uh, 50,000 Jews. 1935, 300,000. 1948, following World War II, uh, they declared their independence May 15th, 713,000. Now watch, watch how it grows. 19, 19 67. Uh, that is when uh, the Jewish people took Jerusalem when they were attacked. They took the Temple Mount. They gave it back for peace. 1994 million. Uh, 2000, 4 million. 800,000. 2006, 5 million. 2012, 5.9. 2015, 6.3. 2017, 6.4. And today, if you go to Israel, there are 6.7 million Jewish people in the land of Israel. Fulfilling Bible prophecy. Every time we take a trip to Israel, as we talk to people, I like to ask them, where are you from? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I'm from New York. I'm from Switzerland. I'm from Russia. I'm from Texas. I'm from New York. I'm from Canada. These Jewish people have moved back to the land. And you know what I say to them? I say, you are fulfilling Bible prophecy. You're fulfilling Bible. They don't even know it. They're fulfilling Bible prophecy. And we get to live it. We get to see it. We get to be uh, a part of it. God says, I will. I will. It is an unconditional, sovereign, gracious, and irrevocable covenant. God promised to scatter the Jews. He promised to regather the Jews. And it is happening. Two-thirds of ethnic Jews will die in the seven-year tribulation. And one-third will receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they're going to enter the Millennial Kingdom. You can turn with me real quick, and we'll close with this. Zechariah chapter 13. It's probably easier to go to Matthew and back up two pages than to go fishing. Zechariah chapter 13. All Israel shall be saved, Romans tells us. And so this is what's going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 13. Look with me at verse 8 and 9. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Two-thirds of the Jews living in the land will die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, that is the fire of the seven-year tribulation, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call in my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. There's coming a tribulation. There's coming a battle of Armageddon. Uh, there's coming the judgment of the sheep and the goat nations. And yes, there's coming a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. Reformed theology came up with a view called amillennialism. Ah Ah means against, it means no, which says there is no kingdom for Israel, and for that matter, there is no earthly kingdom at all. 
And so if you see the name Reformed on the door of a church, run. Don't go to a church that has the word Reformed because they're denying half of what you find in your Bible. It denies a future earthly kingdom for the Jews where Christ reigns on earth and fulfills all the Old Testament promises. They say the kingdom is only a spiritual kingdom and not an earthly one at all. It denies the integrity of the Word of God. It distorts the literal, historical interpretation of Scripture. They have another problem. It's called current events. We are privileged to witness uh, the beginning of the fulfillment of the regathering of the Jews as predicted. Ezekiel 11, Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 36, 37, Jeremiah 31. And so all that I can say in closing is live every day as if it were your last because it could be. And may it be your sincere desire to finish well. Christmas Day, 2019. Dr. Ray Thompson, faithful missionary, director, one of the directors of Baptist International Missions, stepped out of this life after decades of ministry into the presence of Jesus Christ. December 26, 2019. Dr. John Halsey, one of our missionaries in semi-retirement after decades of faithful ministering as a pastor, as a missions director, stepped out of this life, stepped into the presence of God. Today, Kobe Bryant and his 14-year-old daughter and three others died unexpectedly in a helicopter crash. We have no guarantee of tomorrow. Life is but a vapor, soon to pass away. Let's keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus Christ, walking with joy and peace and sharing the, the good news of Jesus Christ. And again, it might be you just singing a song, passing out a track, sharing your testimony, that when we do step out of this life, we're going to finish well. May we pray. Father, thank you tonight. We can open the Word of God. Help us to have discernment, to understand what you have said in your word. Help us to trade tradition for truth, to love your word, to believe your word, and to follow it. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have not been left to ourselves to walk our own ways, but we can trust in you and lean upon you and acknowledge you, you will direct our path. I pray if there is one here tonight and they're not certain that heaven is their home, may they see that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that he died upon the cross for their sins, that he rose again, that he offers the gift of God, salvation, forgiveness. Now, Lord, help each of us who are saved to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, to love you, to serve you, until we can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name I pray.